Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Regina. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, which we're doing in partnership with the Gastric Cancer Foundation. And you'll be hearing more about the Gastric Cancer Foundation during this call. And today's program is supported by Taiho Oncology, Inc., and I really want to thank them for the support of this program. And we have many of you on the call today. There are over 204 participants on the call. You come from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Lithuania, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And now... It is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Koo. And Dr. Koo is medical oncologist, head of the esophagogastric section, gastrointestinal oncology service, assistant attending physician, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Koo will be addressing an overview of gastric cancer, including diagnosis and staging, current standard of care, including chemotherapy, new treatment approaches and the role of targeted treatment and immunotherapy, and precision medicine predicting response to treatment. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Koo. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you so much for the introduction. And really, I think I, I say this every year, but it's really a pleasure to be with you and to be with this group, um, you know, doing this for, for just a couple of years now. So um, I have a heavy mandate. In the next 12 minutes, I'll try and give a brief overview of, you know, all things stomach cancer. So, I think by way of introduction, um, stomach cancer is rare in the U.S. and in Western Europe. It's much more common in East Asia. Uh, we think that this is in part related to the fact that one of the main uh, risk factors for developing stomach cancer is a bacterial infection called H. pylori or Helicobacter pylori. Um, this is generally uncommon uh, in the U.S. and in industrialization. It's more common in developing countries. So. In large part, because stomach cancer is not common, uh, we don't have screening for it. So unlike mammograms or colonoscopies, there is no recommendation to do endoscopies to screen for people when they have no symptoms. And that really means that stomach cancer is detected or diagnosed only when someone has symptoms. And I think part of the challenge is that the symptoms can be really nonspecific. In other words, they could mimic acid reflux. It could mimic um, some kind of food intolerance. It could mimic um, even a gastroenteritis. So it's not surprising, you know, it's not uncommon for the diagnosis to take several, several months, um, from the time someone starts by having symptoms. But probably the most important test in terms of diagnosing stomach cancer is an endoscopy, <clears throat> which is a procedure where a, um, camera is placed into the stomach to carefully examine the esophagus in the stomach, uh, and if there's anything abnormal, that's biopsy. So once a di diagnosis of stomach cancer is established based on endoscopy, we would then consider staging studies, and almost certainly that would include a CAT scan. Frequently, we would also consider a PET scan, uh, and a particularly important test when we think that the cancer is localized, meaning that it has not spread, is what's called a diagnostic laparoscopy, and that's a surgical procedure where a surgeon makes tiny incisions in the abdomen. Uh, she or he places a camera into the abdomen to look around, and that allows us to carefully examine the surface of the abdomen, what's called the peritoneum, to make sure the cancer cells have not spread. So briefly, that would encompass kind of the, that would encompass the basic staging for stomach cancer. Now, moving on to treatment, the treatment really falls, is delineated by whether the cancer has spread or not. Certainly the hope is that the cancer cells have not spread away from the stomach itself. Uh, and, and we see that situation in approximately one half of patients who are diagnosed in the U.S. So the cancer has not spread. Surgery is certainly the most important component of curing the stomach cancer. The goal here is cure when the cancer has not spread. Uh, but in addition to surgery alone, it's become pretty clear in the last decade that other treatments can also help. 
And for the most part, when we have what's called a middle-stage stomach cancer, when the tumor is relatively big, when we think that lymph nodes immediately around the stomach are involved with cancer cells, um, the, standard care, the standard of care, I would say, in most institutions in the U.S., would be chemotherapy both before surgery as well as after surgery. And the goal of the chemotherapy is to treat any microscopic cells that may have escaped and may be undetectable um, despite all, those, all the baseline staging that we've done. So again, in locally advanced setting, uh, the standard of care is surgery, typically with chemotherapy both before and after surgery. Now, on the other hand, in one half of patients, the cancer cells actually have spread away from the stomach itself. Um, we can see uh, metastases or tumors uh, in the liver, in lymph nodes far away from the stomach, in the lining of the abdomen, in the lungs. And in that situation, surgery is not normally considered part of the treatment, and the main treatment therefore becomes chemotherapy as well as other newer treatments. Now, the goals of treatment when the cancer cells are spread are to reduce symptoms related to the cancer, to shrink the cancer on a CAT scan, and to significantly increase someone's lifespan relative to receiving no treatment whatsoever. Now, focusing a little bit more <clears throat> on the systemic treatments, in other words, treatments that are given either intravenously or orally and go throughout the bloodstream and treat the cancer, for many, many years, the main treatment really was chemotherapy alone. And in fact, today, when it comes to localized stomach cancer, stomach cancer that's not spread, the main treatment really still involves chemotherapy alone. Uh, there are certainly newer studies that are looking at adding newer medications, including immunotherapy. But, for the, for, but, but at this point in time, the treatment for a localized stomach cancer is chemotherapy before and after surgery. Now, on the other hand, if the cancer cells have spread and surgery is not an option, there are certainly many new treatments that we can add to chemotherapy. I've already mentioned immunotherapy. So immunotherapy medications are drugs that activate the immune system. The immune system becomes strengthened and is able to recognize and attack the cancer cells. So since 2021, actually almost two years ago at this point, it is now standard or it's FDA approved to add immunotherapy to chemotherapy for all patients with metastatic stomach cancer. In addition, um, going back even before that, going back to 2010, there is also another drug that we can add to chemotherapy uh, is a specific protein known as HER2, H-E-R number 2, is present on the stomach cancer cells. So when the HER2 protein is present in about 20 to 25% of stomach cancer cells, so when it is present, we would add a drug called trastuzumab, uh, which is what we call an antibody. It's a, it's, a, it's a protein that binds and blocks the HER2. The HER2, in turn, is kind of a driving force or dependency of the cancer cells. So by blocking the HER2, uh, the addition of trastuzumab to chemotherapy greatly improves the effectiveness of chemotherapy. The last situation uh, where we would absolutely consider immunotherapy uh, is, is an admittedly rare situation, but about 3 to 4% of stomach cancer cells uh, are, are, are known by the term microsatellite unstable or mismatch repair protein deficient. Uh, this is a very specific situation, but these cancer cells respond exquisitely to immunotherapy. So for those patients, we would certainly add immunotherapy to chemotherapy, and in those patients, complete disappearance of the tumors is sometimes possible. In fact, we also see that these microsatellite unstable or mismatch repair protein deficient tumors, they do also occur uh, in localized stomach cancer that has not spread. We see that actually 7 to 8% of the time. Uh, this is an area actually that's evolving very, very rapidly, but in those patients, there are now many studies that are actually looking at giving immunotherapy, sometimes without chemotherapy, to try to shrink and eliminate the cancer. So that's certainly uh, an exciting area of, of clinical trials research um, uh, that my colleague, Dr. Batam Tombaugh, can talk about. So the last thing I'd like to talk about is the idea of precision medicine. And the idea behind this concept is rather than treating um, every stomach cancer as exactly the same, can we try and personalize the treatment so that we give the best treatment to each individual patient? Uh, and the answer is that we have made progress in this regard, and it relates to what I talked about before. So in order to figure out the characteristics of a tumor, we do tests for specific uh, characteristics, proteins on the cancer cells, and that can help us figure out whether someone is more or less likely to respond to treatment. 
Um, for example, I've already discussed that this HER2 protein is present only in about 20 to 25% of stomach cancer cells. So certainly it's very important at the beginning to test for the HER2 protein. And if it is present, uh, as I mentioned, a drug called trastuzumab can be added to chemotherapy as well as immunotherapy. Similarly, I touched on the, um, the, the specific type of stomach cancer called mismatch repair protein deficient or microsatellite unstable. Again, this is actually very uncommon in patients who have metastases. It's really only about 3 to 4% of tumors, but these tumors have the potential to respond dramatically uh, to immunotherapy. They have the potential to melt away with immunotherapy, and sometimes the tumors can completely disappear with immunotherapy. So therefore, another standard test in the metastatic setting would be to test for this microsatellite status or mismatch repair protein. Again, these are synonymous terms. But either way, we would want to test to try and figure out if someone falls into the small group of, of, of tumors, 3 to 4%, that will greatly respond to immunotherapy. The um, last biomarker for precision medicine that I'll talk about is something called PDL1. PDL1 um, uh, stands for the odd term program, DES ligand 1. But PDL1 is also a protein, and it's present, depending on the definition, in up to 60% of stomach cancer cells. PDL1 is actually an important predictor of whether patients are likely to respond to immunotherapy or not. So meaning that if the PDL1 protein is present, certainly if it is present at very high levels, uh, patients actually have a very have a better likelihood of responding uh, when immunotherapy is added to chemotherapy. Uh, on the other hand, when the PDL1 protein is not present, uh, those tumors are less likely to benefit when immunotherapy is added to chemotherapy. So as I mentioned, since 2021, adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy is an FDA-approved indication for any patient with stomach cancer. But many of us do use the PDL1 protein to try to get a better sense of whether a tumor is more likely or less likely to respond to the addition of immunotherapy to chemo. And certainly in patients who are likely to respond, we would absolutely do it. In patients where there is less benefit for adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy, then that definitely warrants a, a you know, a, a, um, a detailed discussion uh, between, you know, patient and physician regarding the risks and the benefits of adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy. So in um, <clears throat> um, the short period of time, I've given an overview um, of the um, um, kind of basics of stomach cancer, the brief treatment options based on whether the cancer has spread or not, I've also talked a little bit about the systemic options, in other words, the options that go throughout the bloodstream and treat the cancer wherever it is, as well as in the era of personalized medicine, the biomarker testing that's done on the tumor cells to try to figure out the best treatment options for any individual patient. Uh, I think I've done that in a little bit less than 12 minutes, so I will cede my time to the next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ku. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation and a wonderful way to start the program uh, to provide this overview and to give a lot of good detail about some of the treatments available, many of the treatments available for gastric cancer. Um, so thank you. I know the questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Bassam Sonbal. And Dr. Sonbal is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, Senior Associate Consultant, Division of Hematology Oncology, Gastrointestinal Cancer Program, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center in Phoenix, Arizona. And Dr. Sonbal will be addressing the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, controlling treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and guidelines for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sonbal. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and uh, thanks uh, to everyone listening. Uh, it's always a pleasure to also come back to this meeting with a great workshop and great speakers and uh, attendees. Um, so the, I, I want to start by kind of taking uh, uh, from what uh, Dr. Ku uh, stopped uh, when, when he stopped his uh, pr presentation where, uh, at the point of, of talking about the treatments in general. And as you heard from him, uh, 
the standard of care uh, for advanced disease in, in gastric cancer um, has been mainly with chemotherapy as what we call a backbone chemotherapy. In, uh, and in, in some patients, depending on what you heard from Dr. Ku with, uh, with the testing, uh, different, different situations, uh, we have what we call biomarkers. Uh, so uh, based on the PDL1, we decide whether to add immunotherapy. And based on the HER2 and other um, aspects, we, we also add uh, other therapies, uh, such as trastuzumab uh, for the HER2. Trastuzumab spelled as uh, T-R-A-S-T-U-Z-U-M-A-B. Uh, so, so those drugs and, and everything we know um, really have been, have been developed, uh, and, and we, we reached this point uh, because of, of research. And uh, the ultimate goal behind developing any new drug is really to achieve better control of, of the cancer so that at the end of the day, the patient feels better and lives better. Um, and and uh, as I said, I mean, everything here we, we've discussed so far is really uh, was, was done and achieved part of, of the clinical trials and, and, and research in general. So when we say clinical trial and we discuss uh, we discuss those things in clinical trial, what what does a clinical trial mean in general? Um, in general, I think it's it's good to always remember that any new drug that's being developed it starts with uh, in the lab, you know, in the laboratory, on test tubes and animals, and then when we see a promise in the drug, then we take it to what we call a phase one study. The goal of the phase one study is to assess whether that new drug is safe in human and uh, look at the side effects and any, uh, you know, promising signal of, of effectiveness or efficacy in this drug. Now, if we see a promise and the drug is relatively safe, then we take it to what we call a, a phase two study where we're actually expanding on the phase one study and looking at if this drug uh, work in, in a good fashion in, in patients with cancer or not. And if there is a promise, then we take it to uh, what we call a phase three study. You know, phase three study is uh, kind of the most important one of, of all the above because it's taking that new drug and either adding it to the standard of care or comparing it directly to the standard of care to look whether patients can, uh, for example, live longer or get benefits from this new drug or not in attempt to hopefully, you know, change the standard of care with something that's better. Um, so, as I said, again, and as you heard, any of these drugs went through this, this process, and, and we got here because of, of really patients, uh, because of you, uh, because of patients who participate in clinical trials and studies, and because of the altruism of those patients and, and the teamwork in general. Now, that's really mainly about talking about clinical trials, and some patients ask about where, where to find the clinical trial that's appropriate for me. Um, I think it's always important. There, there is a website, for example, called uh, clinicaltrial.gov. Uh, 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 that's one of the websites that you can uh, look at. You can look in, and uh, reach out to support groups. Uh, they have resources. And reach out to the cancer center, the tertiary cancer center that's nearby, and you can go always get input. Um, the, the other thing I want to talk about is controlling symptoms and side effects in general. Now, of course, part of taking care of patients uh, is making sure that a patient is able to tolerate treatments. And overall, symptoms that patients have can be secondary to the cancer itself or side effects from the treatment. A big part of managing the, the, the symptoms uh, is to start treating the cancer itself. Now, a lot of times you will hear the doctor saying at the initial visit, you'll probably feel better after starting chemotherapy. And that's, although sounds strange at the beginning, it's actually true uh, because many of these symptoms are, are really driven by the tumor itself. So when you control the cancer itself, you, you, you will feel better uh, because you're controlling those uh, symptoms. For example, we have the symptom of pain. If a patient is feeling pain and we start chemotherapy and the chemo works, then the cancer shrink and then the patient feels better. And the same thing with uh, a symptom of what we call uh, uh, early satiety, which is feeling full very early. Uh, when we, and we see that very commonly with stomach cancer. If we start treatment, then we can control that and, and patients start feeling uh, better appetite and feeling better after the chemotherapy. So a lot of these symptoms arise as a result of the cancer itself, and, and as I said, controlling the cancer can control the symptoms. 
However, whether chemotherapy or immunotherapy, they're not free of side effects. And we know there are side effects of nausea, diarrhea, uh, sometimes uh, neuropathy, which is the tingling sensation in the fingers and toes. Uh, it's it's really a balance. I mean, between between the the, the it's, it's really a balance between the benefit versus risk in general, and and that's based on communication between you uh, as a patient and and your doctor to work as a team to maximize the benefit and minimize side effects. And communication is key, and I'm going to talk about that in a second as well. So, and it's I always remind patients it's important to remember that. For example, nausea meds that we have now are much much better than before. And today, if a patient calls me saying that, you know, they start treatment and they're vomiting right and left, then uh, I say that there is something wrong because that's not an expectation. Expectation is to have maybe to have a little bit of nausea, but that's usually controlled by medication. Uh, so the advancements that we've had so far are not with the chemotherapy and systemic therapies in general, but also in the supportive care medications, including anti-nausea medications. Um, so as you can see, I mean, the, 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 the good communication between you and your healthcare team to achieve the best results possible is, is definitely a key. And it's, it's, uh, the, 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 the care right now requires multidisciplinary, uh, uh, team approach, uh, to, to take care of the patients, uh, eventually. And I always tell patients uh, to remember that if if your doctor does not hear from you or get any messages from you, then they usually um, assume that everything is going well and, and according to the plan. Therefore, it's important if you have any issues or concerns to let the team know what's going on and, and they can act on it. So your oncologist might uh, consult with their team members, such as palliative care, pain medicine, social worker, nutritionist, and, and other team members, that are very important in, in taking care of your uh, symptoms and supporting you uh, in this journey. So as, as, as I mentioned, I emphasize that communication is, is, is key here. Um, and the, uh, right now we know that, uh, I mean, there are some uh, things that's, that's always important uh, to kind of always remember uh in in the the, the te telehealth in general and telemedicine because we don't want to know that well, i mean you all know that uh of course after covid uh virtual visits via video um also known as telehealth has become uh, much more common compared to before and these types of visits have great advantage however they they do have their own disadvantages uh, as well uh, so some some of the disadvantages, uh, or let's talk about the advantages first. Uh, I mean, they they can facilitate some of the care with helping with avoiding travel and exposures. Um, at at the same time, uh, I think there are a few things that you should consider um, when when you're doing a virtual visit. First, uh, I think you should ask yourself: Is this visit appropriate to be virtual? For example, if you have new symptoms. Um, and maybe abdominal pain, it's probably better to have a face-to-face -face visit to assess those symptoms in a better fashion with examination by your doctor or healthcare professional. And if the visit is appropriate, then try to be prepared. For example, the environment uh, that you're in is, is vital. So you should be in an environment with good internet coverage, uh, quiet enough so you can hear your doctor and they can hear you, and it's uh, usually not advisable to call from a car or from a living room where the TV is on in the background. And also, I think at the beginning of the visit, it's important to introduce who you have with you in the room because your doctor might not be able to see uh, who's there in the room. And um, it's, that's really mainly also to, to respect your privacy. Uh, while your doctor may be mentioning some sensitive issues, you want to know that, uh, uh, that your doctor is aware who's in the room. Similarly, like the face-to-face -face visit, it's always important to get prepared with questions and think what to ask the doctor. I think I, I always appreciate when a patient comes in, uh, you know, uh, and they have a list of questions to cover uh, during the visit to get the maximum benefit from the visit itself. And, of course, it's always important to be on time. And, and with that, uh, for me to try to finish on, on time, I, I conclude my part of this presentation. And uh, I really thank you for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sandval. That was really excellent, really outstanding. And 
really covering a lot of very important areas for patients um, in terms of both clinical trials and their, of course, quality of life with managing um, all the treatment side effects or discomfort that they may experience, and also the telehealth, telemedicine guidelines. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate this presentation. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, nutrition and hydration are essential um, in your tolerance to treatment and in your quality of life. Your diet might be modified throughout your cancer treatment, mainly to assist with managing side effects that you might experience, such as a decreased appetite, maybe reflux and indigestion, um, filling full quickly and, and eating less than normal, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and possibly weight loss. A dietitian can provide your individual calorie and protein and fluid needs to help guide you through this time. They can also help with any diet modifications and any questions you have about nutrition and your diagnosis. Now, each person's response to treatment is different. Um, it's so important that you're communicating with your healthcare team along the way so they can support you as quickly as possible and addressing any changes that you're going through. In general, when we're looking at nutrition and your goals during treatment, one of the big things is we want to look at weight maintenance. Um, we avoid weight loss during this time for a few reasons. Um, number one is that when we have weight loss during cancer treatment, oftentimes it's lean muscle mass that you lose. It's not the fat mass that's lost. And that can start to become a challenge um, with energy, endurance, um, sometimes side effects from treatment can include fatigue, and the loss of lean muscle mass can add to that feeling of fatigue. Nutrition also plays a role in um, helping you heal from treatment and um, keeping you strong in your body, um, functioning as optimally as possible. And so when you're not getting enough nutrition in, Sometimes these areas can be compromised. Even if you're overweight, you can still become malnourished. A lot of times folks have a hard time um, recognizing that, um, but it is true. And um, so things that can interfere with um, you getting in enough nutrition are the things that we need to know about. If you're struggling, we need to know. If there are certain things that are giving you Challenges, that's an important thing to talk about with your healthcare team. Now, uh, sometimes um, the discussion of a feeding tube becomes part of the treatment plan. Not all patients will be um, going through this, this question or possibility, but it is something that can happen. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's part of the treatment plan and ensuring that you get your nutrition and hydration that's needed during your treatment to help you tolerate this journey as best as possible. Um, oftentimes, medications are given to patients. It can be very overwhelming um, to keep it all straight. And so feeling comfortable with the information that you're provided about the medications you're given to address the side effects that you're going through is very important. Making sure you're taking them as they're directed is something to just be mindful of. So. Um, keeping a list of those medications and having some coordination around that can really help with some of the side effects that you go through. Hydration is something that we oftentimes forget about, um, but dehydration is very real. Um, dehydration can actually amplify some of the side effects that you experience, such as nausea, fatigue, um, and making you just feel very um, uh, dizzy and, and lightheaded. Fluids are very important and they're anything that's liquid at room temperature. Um, things like water, milk, sports drinks, um, fruit juice. Most folks need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. So that's about 64 to 80 ounces minimally a day. Some treatments um, can increase your need for more fluid. 
So talking with your healthcare team about your unique needs is very important. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team here dedicated to supporting you during this time. So please reach out to them and don't hesitate to communicate as soon as possible when you're experiencing changes. Thank you. I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn now. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was really outstanding. It's a wonderful presentation. Lots of invaluable information to our participants about nutrition and hydration. Thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Stacy Hirschman, and Ms. Hirschman is the Executive Director of the Gastric Cancer Foundation, and she is a and the Gastric Cancer Foundation is a partner on this, today's program. And Ms. Hirschman will be discuss, discussing Gastric Cancer Foundation's free programs and will give you information about their website and how to contact them. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Hirschman. Thank you, Carolyn. And, and thank you to all of our presenters. Uh, the Gastric Cancer Foundation is delighted that we're able to partner with all of you um, and it's such a blessing that technology is enabling us to uh, provide such current and useful information to people today who are really all across the globe. It's um, amazing. Um, there's something to do, to, new to learn each time we do these workshops, um, and I find it incredibly encouraging. It is so important to acknowledge that there is hope, because along with all of the treatments, hope really is an essential part of this cancer journey. I'm going to just briefly highlight a few things that are offered by the Gastric Cancer Foundation because we really want to save time for your questions. I encourage you to visit our website, which is gastriccancer.org, to learn more about everything that we offer and to get more details. So first, let me talk about research. Um, research is a huge focus of our foundation, and we've granted over $3.4 million so far to promising projects. I want you to know that you can be a part of this. If you are a patient or a close family member, um, please check out the Gastric Cancer Registry and consider providing your story and possibly a tissue or saliva sample so we can continue to support the work of scientists who are trying to find better diagnostics and treatments and a cure, our ultimate goal. The registry team can answer all of your questions and help you with registrations. All of that information is on our website. Dr. Sanbal um, gave you um, an eloquent presentation about the importance of clinical trials, which are so essential for approving and making new treatments available. But we know that many patients are not informed of the potential benefits of incorporating clinical trials into early treatment, and many trials actually fail for a lack of enrollment. We know this area can be very confusing and even frightening for some, so we offer a free, unbiased, no obligation, no pressure navigator service, it's confidential, to help patients and families learn about open trials that match with their individual diagnosis and disease state, and that will prepare you to go back and have conversations with your medical care team. I encourage you to check it out. Information can really be powerful. We also have resources that are directly for you. Our website, which I've mentioned, gastriccancer.org, is a hub of information and links. You can also sign up for our e-newsletter so that updates will arrive directly in your inbox. We offer a safe online community exclusively for patients and caregivers. You can ask questions and share information and experiences with people who understand this disease firsthand. As I have reviewed the posts, I am really struck by how practical and caring they are, honest interactions between people who are on the same journey. Check it out. No obligation. The link is on our homepage. And last but not least, we offer a nutrition support series called the Gesundheit Kitchen. It's a wonderful resource for patients and families who want tips on how to live and even enjoy eating after treatment. 
and to get the nutrition that you need. Hans Rufert, a gastric cancer survivor and professional chef, joins with a licensed dietitian to present short episodes. Hans knows the challenges from personal experience, and I think you'll appreciate the spirit, humor, and optimism with which he approaches life. All episodes are archived on our website, and again, I encourage you to take a look. We've made some recent improvements to make it easier to navigate and access content, and you can also download recipes. So let me end now and wrap up as I always do. No one needs to face this diagnosis alone, and I don't think that anyone should try. Please take advantage of all the support and resources that are available. Gastric Cancer Org is one good place to start. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Hirschman. That was really beautiful and just a wonderful, what a wonderful resource for everyone. So some of you may know of the Gastric Cancer Foundation, but for those of you who do not, so at the end of today's program, um, you're all going to be getting, um, well, I should get it tomorrow, a survey monkey evaluation. And in there, we're going to include all of the websites and anything that we mentioned as a resource for all of you. And we definitely will also mention and give you all the information about contacting the Gastric Cancer Foundation. What a wonderful resource for all of you. Um, and you'll, you'll be hearing, you'll have a chance to ask more questions of Ms. Hirschman during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And I'm, I'm Carolyn Mester, and I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services. Just briefly, um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide support to people throughout the United States. And we do that through our Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673, with a staff of about 40, 45 oncology social workers. People often call our Hope Line with their particular question or concern. And we offer them a host of services, from practical to financial assistance uh, and co-payment assistance. We also offer them support or an opportunity to join one of our online support groups. Um, also, we offer um, these, these workshops. And we do have a pet assistance program, so people who may have a dog or a cat and they're not, able, they're not well enough to take care of them, um, we will assist with that cost as well as the cost of food for those uh, for your um, pets as well. Um, so we have many services. I've just mentioned a few of them. Um, and uh, I just want you to be aware of, of really all the resources that Cancer Care offers to take advantage of them, and they're all free. And for those who are international, you can listen to these programs, as we can see today. Many of you are on this program today. Um, and you can listen to our workshops live, or you can listen to them as podcasts. All of our workshops that we offer are available as podcasts as well. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Regina to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Regina? To ask a question, simply type your question in and press send. Okay, so we have a number of questions here. I'll start with the questions. Um, <clears throat> so um, for this is for Dr. Um, Koo. What are some ways to possibly develop an early screening tool in the U.S. for gastric cancer? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think that probably, I think as with many different cancers, um, that's probably the holy grail. I mean, I think to be able to identify cancer, um, you know, sometimes even when the tumors are still microscopic, you know, potentially could be, could be helpful. So, you know, I think that having said that, you know, part of the reason why we don't screen for stomach cancer is really the fact that it's very uncommon in the U.S. And, you know, in the world of epidemiology, there actually are well-stated characteristics of a particular disease and also of a screening test that lends itself to screening. So, in other words, you know, for example, we, uh, you know, we recommend mammograms for breast cancer, colonoscopies for colon cancer, and pap smears for uh, cervical cancer, um, in part because these are relatively common diseases, in part because the screening tests are very accurate at identifying the cancer, 
And also, especially in part because early treatment um, improves um, the outcome. Now, in stomach cancer, um, uh, it actually in East Asia, uh, in Japan and Korea, they actually have screening tests with either endoscopies or x-rays because it's so common. But in the U.S., because stomach cancer is not common, uh, we don't recommend screening, in part because, A, financially, um, uh, it, it doesn't make sense, but B, also, you know, we're, we're much more likely to diagnose what are called false positive um, tests that we end up with a, a misdiagnosis when someone someone doesn't have stomach cancer. So, you know, the, the question is complicated in the sense that, you know, while in principle we want to develop screening tests, uh, in reality, stomach cancer is not necessarily a cancer in the U.S. that we would want to screen for just because it's so uncommon. Um, very quickly, uh, the last thing I would say is that for many different cancers, there, there are, you know, there are early efforts uh, to actually look for what we call circulating tumor DNA, where you do a blood test, and the blood test allows you to identify cancer DNA floating around. And potentially, not now, but over the next couple of decades, we may end up, you know, switching to using blood-based tests to try and diagnose early any number of different cancers. But, but certainly those tests are in no way ready for prime time. Uh, and as for stomach cancer screening in the U.S., because it's so uncommon, you know, thankfully, um, there really is not a, a, a clear reason to, to start screening, you know, every U.S. citizen, or well, not citizen, but everyone in, in the U.S., uh, for uh, for stomach cancer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and the question for Dr. Sanbal, um, other than HIPIC or PIPIC, uh, any any other methods for gastric cancer with mess in the peritoneum? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Other yes, than what? Certainly. Other than... Um, Sounds like a PIPIC. HIPIC or oh, yeah. also, mm -hmm. PIPIC. Oh, okay. Any other methods for gastric cancer with mets in the peritoneum? Yeah, so uh, first of all, HIPEC is um, it, it is hyperthermic uh, intraperitoneal uh, chemotherapy. What that means is it's a kind of a, a method of delivering chemotherapy inside the peritoneum. Now, to step back a little bit, uh, the, the peritoneum is a kind of a more like a, I describe it more like a sack uh, or a bag that surrounds the structures in the belly. And as you heard from Dr. Ku, I mean, the, the peritoneum can be involved by gastric cancer, not uncommonly. And uh, whenever it's involved there, um, usually the standard of care treatment is really with, uh, with systemic therapy, meaning we, we consider it as if it's a different organ, as if the cancer has gone to liver or lungs and we treat it as stage 4 disease. Now, HIPEC uh, is the method of uh, sometimes uh, they take the patient to the operating room and they deliver uh, a chemotherapy inside the peritoneum. So the chemotherapy is mainly inside the abdominal cavity. Um, it's kind of more like a warm uh, chemotherapy. Uh, so with an idea of uh, uh, kind of controlling the cancer inside the peritoneum, uh, with minimizing the toxicity outside, meaning minimizing side effects, uh, because uh, a lot of the absorption is happening in the peritoneum rather than uh, in the blood. Um, HIPEC is not considered standard even in the U.S. It's actually, especially in the U.S., is not considered the standard of care. It, it, it is mainly used in some Asian countries, and also they use other methods. Um, but but uh, in the U.S., uh, there are um, kind of there are studies looking at uh, HIPEC and looking at something newer. It's called PIPEC, um, and those are things again. They're not standard of care. They're more like uh, in a clinical trial setting. So, uh, for example, the PIPEC I mentioned. I know there is a study ongoing right now in uh, uh, Mayo Clinic, Florida, and in City of Hope in California, where they're enrolling patients with peritoneal disease. Um, but that's really, in general, how we manage peritoneal uh, involvement. Thank you. Um, and then um, a question um, for um, Dr. Sunball. I am a newly diagnosed um, 
I'm newly diagnosed with, with um, gastric cancer, 45 years old, and my doctor has recommended stomach removal. I'd like to get a second opinion to see if the surgeon can leave some of the stomach intact. How do you recommend I find a physician? If you could answer this in a general way, Dr. Sanbal, just because it's, uh, you know, it's obviously um, different parts of the country, and, you know, so how does one go about getting a second opinion? Yeah, I think it's, a second opinion is always important um, in, in uh, cancer management, and I always remind patients that there is nothing wrong with second opinion, and, and actually I encourage it, and it's very uh, commonly accepted among the oncology community, um, especially when it gets to stomach cancer because, I mean, they're not uh, colon cancer. They're not common, and with surgery, it has been shown, uh, you know, in multiple studies right now that, you know, you want to get the surgery in a in a center where there is a high volume of stomach cancer surgeries. So you don't want the surgeon operating on on the breast cancer, and then the next surgery is going to be a stomach cancer that they operate on. Um, so I would say wherever that uh, you know, whatever you the, the you know the the person asking the question, they're located. They probably have a a tertiary cancer center, kind of a bigger cancer center that's nearby that they can approach and, and send a message. Usually most cancer centers, they have what we call a patient navigator. The navigator will uh, take a look, get records, and then they can set you up with a, with a surgeon uh, to kind of uh, have that conversation. Um, I mean, as you heard from Dr. Cook, the kind of patients who we consider surgeries on is, uh, are they really the patients who don't have cancer that has spread, um, you know, to other organs? Uh, so a conversation is, is really important. And I can't really uh, go into more details because, uh, of course, every patient is different and the details of uh, your, your cancer might be different from another patient. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Trishman, there's a lot of questions about how do I eat after surgery for stomach cancer. And if you could say more about that wonderful program that you have um, in terms of, um, you, you could say more about that. You mentioned it during your presentation, but I, people obviously want to hear more about it. Sure. Um, so, number one, we don't, we don't, we don't provide medical advice. Um, so any um, of the tips and suggestions that are on our website, we encourage you to consult um, with your own care team because, as the doctor just said, everybody everybody is different. But um, Hans Rufert um, is has I believe it's he's 14 years I think since diagnosis. Um, so he's he's been down this road quite quite a ways. And in his um, video series, we try to um, provide practical ideas to address the most common kinds of challenges that people um, experience. So it's not a cooking show um, primarily, although there are cooking um, suggestions, but it really is a vehicle for highlighting what some of the challenges are and what pe what people might want to try to adjust um, in their diet and in their lifestyle um, to live um, most positively, to reengage with life, um, and to have the, the best effects. Um, our latest series is Chips for Everyday Eating, and Hans addresses things like um, how do you start the day strong with breakfast? Can you still have coffee? Um, which is such a social part of, of our world. Um, what about if you're traveling? Um, those kinds of things. So it's a very practical series, and I think that Hans's um, personal style and spirit also offers great support for people because this is a difficult adjustment in life. All right. It sounds like a wonderful uh, program, and I think for those of you who haven't participated in it or listened to it or – uh, it sounds like a wonderful. Is, a, is it a podcast series, or it's live, or how is it? Um... Um, they are recorded um, videos, and mm -hmm. we send them out. Um, if you sign up for our newsletter, they'll come to you each time a new one is released. But we have a video archive at gastriccancer.org, and you can also um, filter by a particular area of interest. So if you're looking for like, what can I eat as a, you know. Um, 
main dish, um, you know, you can sort that way and you can download um, ideas. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I would like to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. It's been a, a wonderful call. I also want to thank our participants for your wonderful presentations as well. Um, I mean, if you wonderful questions, actually. And, you know, we do have many more questions that we were not able to get to, so I want to comment about these questions. For those of you who are able to ask a question, and for those of you who have a question yet to ask or um, or, or, or in queue to ask a question, please, all of you, take your questions to your treating healthcare team. They, of course, know you the best, and they will be able to um, address your questions. Also, you've learned something from the program today. So what you've learned, you can take back to the healthcare team. When you ask your question, you can you may frame the question differently, or you may hear the answer differently. And we do encourage you to keep asking your questions until you are satisfied with an answer that you can work with. So, you know, it's very good to, to be consistent and ask questions. And to, if you don't quite get the answer, ask again and again so that you are as informed as possible. And also take advantage of the Gastric Cancer Foundation, uh, Cancer Care Services, um, so that you're not feeling that you're alone in coping with gastric cancer or any type of cancer, that you now have these resources really at your fingertips to call. And they're all free, and that's another great advantage of them. So I do want to thank you all for your participation today. And again, I, this, we're beginning a new year, 2023. Well, it started already. And so we will be doing many more programs that will be of interest to you, and you'll be getting information about them. And um, you know, we encourage you to take advantage of these free services. Many people feel a bit isolated when they get cancer in general, gastric cancer, any type of cancer. And also, you know, during the pandemic, um, people also sometimes feel a little bit more isolated. And so it is important to connect with resources that, that give you a connection to others. So both the Gastric Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care are resources that you can utilize, and please take advantage of that. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.